0: Hey, podcast listeners, want to let you know about a slight change happening to your podcast subscription in the new year. Come January 1, if you have been previously subscribed to this podcast, you will find yourself unsubscribed because we're making a switch in podcast hosts. I barely understand it myself. But what I do need to tell you is that once the new year comes, you need to search Apple Podcasts or Spotify for this podcast under the same name, and resubscribe. You'll have access to all of the old content, and new content will automatically be uploaded to your device. So, thank you for your patience with that. And we look forward to bringing you more content as we go along. Charles Swindoll once said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Have you ever been in a situation where you responded? Unexpectedly, perhaps even poorly? I'm going to guess that's happened to most of us. Um, Whether it's the slow driver who cut you off on the road, or in my case, the kid last week who whizzed a puck by my ear, sometimes our responses aren't necessarily the windows into our character that we want the world to see. Now, I also realize that in some instances, not responding is the best way to go. Indeed, when I get stuck behind traffic, most contented response is no response at all. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? And I, like many of you, can get agitated when the stakes are raised. Our responses matter, don't they? How we respond to people, events, or encounters can have life-giving or life-changing effects. And while not responding is indeed sometimes the best response, I also think it can leave us missing out. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel for the first time. Now, as many of you know, to walk where Jesus walked is an incredible experience. For instance, to stand on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, to hear the waves, and to picture Jesus out on a boat calming the storm. To peer across the grassy bowl on the Mount of Beatitudes, knowing that Jesus gave his famous Sermon on the Mount there, how much that message has shaped our lives. To climb the southern steps, the 2,000-year-old stairs which Jesus himself would have climbed as he entered the temple. Or to see the garden tomb, the place potentially where Jesus was buried and where Mary and Mary would have first heard the news that he is risen. It's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? On that trip, we were also fortunate that we could visit Bethlehem in the little Palestinian village of Beit Sahur on the West Bank. Now not every tour gets the credentials to go into Palestine, so I remember this part of our itinerary being as one that I was looking forward to. To not only see such a troubled part of the world, but to see the birthplace of Jesus, and to walk in the fields where the shepherds heard the amazing news. Well, I was all in. Yet I confess that my response was not exactly what you or I would have expected. In fact, if you know me, you know I like to take photos. I like to record a little travel journal and share my experiences. When I was looking through photos of that trip, I found that I didn't have one single photo of Shepherd's Field. In my defense, I remember we visited there right before lunch. I was probably hungry, low on patience, a little jet-lagged. But to be honest, the field wasn't that exciting. It was like any other piece of real estate I had seen in the last several days. It was weedy, rocky, unpicturesque. Yet it was also the place where the angels proclaimed the news that the Messiah had been born. And I let that moment pass me by. Now you don't have to be traveling to miss out on responding to things of significance. Indeed, our world is one distraction after another. From technology to politics to the pandemic, we are living in a culture that is disconnected and disembodied more than ever. As we've said often this Advent, our world is dark, and it is becoming less and less connected to faith. But what if it could be different? What if it should be different? Certainly, the core idea of our faith lies in the Incarnation. It's what we've been anticipating, celebrating, and reflecting on this entire Advent season. God himself came down from heaven. He took on flesh to dwell among us, walk among us, and redeem us as only God can. Now that's mind-boggling. So I think the real question for us, especially as Christmas Day has passed, is to ask ourselves, how have we been transformed by this fresh encounter with the living God? How are we meant to respond to the Incarnation today? Will we put the trappings of the world ahead? Will we simply box up Christmas now that it's over and put it away until next year? Or will we permit ourselves to stand afresh in awe of what God has done? and allow Jesus' incarnation to shape our lives and transform the way we live. Martin Luther King Jr. once opined that the truth of the value of Christmas was that God himself came nearer to earth, that Jesus is the revelation of who we are meant to be, and that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is our eternal hope, the hope of the world. Therefore, as we take a last look at the Christmas story, I suggest that our response to Jesus' incarnation shapes the way we live. Our text today is Luke 2, verses 8 to 20, which is where the shepherds first hear of the amazing news. These verses tell us how they responded. The shepherds didn't let the world dictate what they would do. They didn't shrink back as society would have expected them to. Instead, they responded in obedience. And that night transformed them and those around them. Now, have you ever wondered why God picked shepherds to be the first to hear of the news? It's not like shepherds were central figures in early Jewish life. They weren't royalty or noblemen. They weren't special by any means. In fact, they were quite the opposite. Next to the lepers, they were the lowest of the lowest. There was no one more undesirable. Well, unless you were a tax collector. In short, shepherds were weedy, rocky, and unpicturesque. There is something significant and powerful about the inclusion of the lowly shepherds in the Christmas story. They're not merely an afterthought or a sentimental inclusion that children portray in Christmas programs. No, the inclusion of the shepherds tells us that the kingdom of God is for everyone. It isn't just for those who fit in, for the rich, or the powerful, or the well-connected. It isn't for those who look the part. No, the good news is for everyone who knows they need Jesus. But there's a, another, a potentially more intriguing layer. Some scholars also believe that it's quite likely that these shepherds were the very same men who raised and protected the lambs designated for temple sacrifice. With their close proximity to Jerusalem, these shepherds kept watch over a special flock of unblemished lambs who would one day become an offering to God. Therefore, when the angels came to these shepherds to proclaim the birth of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, they were foreshadowing Jesus as the ultimate and final sacrifice for humankind. God chose those shepherds in that field to reveal his plan that the good shepherd himself would fulfill God's promises of presence and salvation. And consider this, on that dark night in that little field, outside of Mary and Joseph, the only people in the world who knew that the Christ, the Messiah, had been born were those shepherds. After 400 years of silence, 400 years of darkness, God spoke to humble shepherds, on a remote hillside on the edges of Bethlehem. God still speaks and uses the humble among us today. What shall be our response? Although the incarnation was over 2,000 years ago, the good news of Jesus' birth is no less significant in our lives. We may live in the in-between, but our true home is in the future. And therefore, as we make room in our hearts to celebrate the first coming of Jesus we also prepare ourselves as we wait for Jesus to come again. Living in wait, however, does not mean that we simply do nothing. Indeed, theologian Fleming Rutledge tells us that in our present lives, we are both bearing witness and waiting expectantly for the coming of the Lord. Therefore, if our response to Jesus' incarnation shapes the way we live, as we wait for him to come again then we ought to live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. Therefore, I'd like to suggest four ways to help us bear witness and wait expectantly well. The first is to live fearlessly. When the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and the shepherds were understandably terrified. All throughout Scripture, the visible light of the glory of God was met with fear and trembling. Yet in verse 10, amidst the extraordinary explosion of light, the angel also said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Shepherds heard that message. And the personal sign and the personal reassurance they were given encouraged them to seek out the baby Jesus. How could the shepherds stay away? They couldn't not go and see. Even though they were uneducated and on the fringe of society, they would have known the prophecies which foretold where the Messiah would be revealed. And while they wouldn't have expected that they personally would be the first to hear the news, the special sign of a baby wrapped in cloths was akin to how they would have treated their own precious newborn lambs. This sign was for them. Verse 15 continues, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they had spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Shepherds didn't let a little thing like fear stop them. Instead, they knew exactly where to find the baby, and they rushed off to see. Their eagerness to see the Christ child for themselves was a massive response in faith. And by overcoming their fears... Their belief and awe gave them a front row seat into God's plan of redemption unfolding before their eyes. They became a part of the story. But there's more. They didn't just keep that awe to themselves. Instead, they bore witness. They spread the word concerning what had been told to them. And all who heard it were amazed. There's something wonderful about being awed by God, isn't there? It's so often we let fear hold us back. As fallen beings, we can be filled with fear of the past, present, and future. We can let our fears of failure, rejection, or of our circumstances dictate our responses. If you're like me, where we usually fail is in trusting in God's sovereignty, in trusting that His goodness and mercy will follow us just as He's promised. Do not fear is the most repeated command in the Bible. And ultimately, we fight fear by fearing God himself. That is, by turning our fearful reactions into ones of reverence. By trusting in God. By trusting in his word and in his promises. This is where we find lasting peace. Fear is also diminished by God's grace. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, the angel had said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Which means God with us. The angel's message is filled with great joy because we no longer have reason to fear. Fear. Once separated from God, God drew near to us, emptying himself, bridging the great divide between divinity and humanity and delivering his people, us, into a new life of peace and blessing that will have no end. Without the incarnation, there is no redemption. Without the manger, there's no cross. But by God's grace alone, God and sinners could now be reconciled. Indeed, all we have to do is hear the message. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. The good news of Jesus, the miracle of his incarnation, is not merely acknowledging that we're sinners, but that Jesus is our Savior. And when we truly hear that message, when we grasp it and receive it and hold in awe this good news of great joy... We no longer have reason to fear. The second response is to live gratefully. When the shepherds told of all they had seen and heard, one person meditated more deeply than the rest. In verse 19 we read, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. By this time Mary had been through a lot, hadn't she? The angel's startling announcement, the, the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. A long journey to Bethlehem and the birth of her son, the son of God, in a rural Judean village. But through it all, Mary humbly submitted to God's will. I am the Lord's servant, she said, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. In essence, Mary was living gratefully. She held close and treasured all that she had seen and heard and experienced. To treasure is to keep or hold something as precious. In the Greek, the word sinatere, used in this text, means to keep something alive, to keep it safe, to hold on to it tightly. It is written in the imperfect tense, meaning that it is an ongoing and continuous action. Quite simply, it is to cherish something and to keep on cherishing it. Treasuring is an attitude, an expression of our emotions and heart. When I was 15, about to turn 16, both my parents and I were eagerly awaiting me getting my driver's license. I think they were more excited about this than I because of all the activities and sports that I was involved in. They'd even given me an old car in which I was dutifully learning to drive and practicing in the snow that winter. What do you think any 15-year-old really wants in their car? Yeah, stereo. And while I probably dropped a ton of hints, I wasn't really expecting to get one. But on Christmas Day, there was one poorly-wrapped package left at the back of the tree. And lo and behold, it was for me. My dad had gone out on Christmas Eve and picked up a CD player just so that Daddy's girl could have a booming sound system in her car. Okay, well, that's a cool memory. It's not really the point of my story. The point is that if you knew my dad, you would know that shopping wasn't his thing. When I was older, he would often task me to go out and purchase the things he wanted or needed. And certainly my 15-year-old self didn't give that a second thought. Years later, however, I realized the magnitude of what my dad had done. And of course, now that he's no longer here, it's one of the memories I hold on to. My dad did something he never did just for me because of who he was and who I was to him. And when I was thinking about a gift that I treasured for this message, it came to mind that I treasured that gift Because of the memory of my father going out of his way to give something special to me. Our father, our heavenly father that is, also went out of his way to give us an amazing and special gift at Christmas. And when we're able to grasp the extent of that gift, the extent of our sinfulness, the extent of our separation, then we can grasp the magnitude of God's gift of Jesus to us. We can rejoice giving thanks in everything, and living gratefully for him. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The gift of Jesus is the gift of a Savior, and it's our gift to treasure. A third response is to live incarnationally. One of my favorite parts of this text is what happens after the shepherds visit Jesus. In verse 20, we read that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What a difference a day makes. On the day before Christ was born, the shepherds were in the field, tending their sheep. On the day after he was born, they were back in that very same field, tending those very same sheep. Yet in the in-between, they were profoundly changed by what they experienced. The Messiah had come just as God had promised. And therefore, even though they went back to their regular duties, they were transformed by all they had heard and seen. They were full of praise and glory to God. Now we glorify God by exalting Him, by honoring Him, by showing our gratefulness by how we live our lives today. When we treasure Jesus, we treasure the greatness of who he is and what he's done. We also recognize that he is the revelation of who we are meant to be. He's our example. And therefore as and therefore by his spirit we can respond by living incarnationally and purposefully on mission for him. We've been created to be his body in the present world, the ongoing personification of his presence. Mercy and love. Indeed, Jesus said that he is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So as one author writes, when we say yes to Jesus, when we yield our lives to him, we move from darkness into light, and we're now illuminated by the light of Christ by which we live our lives. In that same vein, in his book, Hidden Christmas, Timothy Keller states that the only way to really understand the Christmas message is to glorify Jesus as Lord. To glorify means to give more weight to Jesus than to ourselves. It is to put his goals, his teachings, his mission above our own ideas. It means that we put him as the priority in our lives, imitating him in all our relationships, and reflecting him to become the light of the world. Certainly, Jesus has told us so. In Matthew 5.14, he tells us, you are the light of the world. And in verse 16, he says, in that same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The things we do in the present matter. Everything from our vocations to our hobbies to our ministries to the random encounter on the street. Sharing the light of Christ is not simply a way to make the present more bearable. It's intrinsic to building God's kingdom for the future. When we bear God's light, we incarnate Jesus to those around us. We embody him to the world, showing the world his love, his compassion, and his mercy. And despite the darkness that surrounds, We need not fear, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. As Anton Kostenberger paraphrases, he has given us everything we need to worship him in a way that pleases and glorifies his name and equips us for every good work. Now perhaps tomorrow or next week, we will all return to the various flocks we shepherd, to the various fields where we work, to the regular programming of our lives. But in our encounter with the living God this Christmas, how have we been changed? The greatest story continues to unfold. And when we bear witness, we become a part of God's plan for changing the world. We write ourselves into his story. And our lives will have the greatest significance when we choose to make that story about Jesus Christ as Lord. This is our choice. As Fleming Rutledge states, every step we take in the world is a step toward either darkness or light. Every harsh word, every mean act, every vengeful thought is a part of the works of darkness. Every act of forgiveness, every small act of charity, every temptation resisted is a piece of the armor of light. We either bless and build up or we tear down and hurt. But when we live incarnationally, we embody Jesus, the light that came into the darkness and with which the darkness could not overcome. Let's go back briefly to Mary for a moment. Mary not only treasured what God had done, but she also continued to think and ponder over all that had happened. We've already talked about how treasuring elicits a heartfelt response, but Mary was singled out for both her emotional and intellectual responses. The participle pondered in verse 19 means to reflect deeply on a subject or to pull diverse aspects of events together. And Mary continued to think over the events as a whole so she could interpret their meaning collectively. With the shepherd's words and excitement added to her own experiences, a deeper significance of God's revelation in her life was beginning to form. When we ponder the works of God, we also make unique connections to what has been revealed to us. What we have seen, heard, and experienced of God in our own lives and in the lives of those close to us. And yet, unlike Mary... We also know so much more from which to base our interpretation. Four weeks ago, we were reminded that Advent begins in the dark. And even though the light of Christ has broke through the darkness, that darkness is still palpable for many. Like the shepherds experienced darkness before their visit to the manger, they also went into that but dark night afterwards. Indeed, the ravages of the flood, serious illnesses, the the threat and divisiveness of the pandemic, and family or financial worries caused the light of Jesus to be muted for many this Christmas. It is in this space, however, post-manger darkness, as one author calls it, that I urge us to ponder the promises of God. Indeed, God has not promised that this life would be trouble-free. He's not promised that we would be free of sickness or of financial worry. He's not promised that bad things would never happen. Instead, in post-manger darkness, we know that Jesus alone is our salvation and our hope. And as we wait for evil to be defeated once and for all, living hopefully alters our perspective for the better. It helps us to place a deeper significance of God's revelation in our lives. And it keeps us pointed towards Jesus as we wait expectantly for his kingdom to come where he will reign forever and ever. Yet in that wait, God is still at work, even before we see it. For we know that God has promised that he will be with us even in the dark. That he will never leave nor forsake us. That no matter what happens to us, nothing, not even death, can separate us from his love. And he's also promised that resurrection will triumph. And that one day there will be no mourning or crying or pain. And that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. God shines his beams of revelation to show us that Jesus is the light of the world. And he keeps his promises even when it still seems dark. And because of that, we can set all our hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring us when he is revealed. 1 Peter 1.13 We can live hopefully in the wait, knowing that something better is yet to come. J.Y. Kim tells us that this is what Christian hope looks like. It doesn't ignore fear, anxiety, or doubt. It confronts them. It holds steady, clinging to peace in the midst of chaos. Through life's many treacherous storms, Christian hope is buoyed by something great that has happened and something great that is going to happen again. The good news of Advent is not merely that we are faithful in our waiting, but that God is faithful in His coming. Jesus is our blessed hope, the hope of the world, and Advent reminds and prepares us for His return. It reminds us to ponder the contrast between what is and what is promised. And when we rest in those promises, We need not fear the dark. This is where our hope lies. And so we wait expectantly, bearing witness with endurance, confidence, and joy, no matter what difficulties we might face along the journey. Our disappointments and sufferings and the pain which characterize this life are therefore held in tension between the little baby that was born that dark night and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who will one day come again in glory. Friends, the wonder of Christmas does not end because the day is past, it's only the beginning. Indeed, Christmas points us to the rest of Jesus' story his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and yes, his coming again. He will make all things new bringing about his kingdom, which will have no end. That's his promise. For he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Therefore, as children of God, we have a choice. We can wait passively in the here and now, or we can bear witness and prepare the way for the Our response to Jesus' incarnation shapes the way we live. The choice is ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you went out of your way to give us the most amazing and special gift of Jesus. Thank you for how you continue to reveal yourself to us, calling us Christmas upon Christmas to the wonder and awe of what you were doing in our lives and in the world. Help us to respond well to your invitation to become a part of your story, to be light to those around us as we bear witness to Jesus as Savior, and as we glorify and praise him for all that he's done and all that he will do. It is in his name that we pray, amen.